2: This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I've got a lollapalooza of a show for you today. Marion Nessel, the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, uh, is joining me today to talk about her brand new book, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Mel- Marion, welcome to the show, and I, I'm just, I'm lit- almost literally speechless with imp- Um, yes, speechless is the word. No, I'm speechless with admiration uh, for your accomplishment with this book. I mean, I thought food politics was great. I think everything you write is great. But this, I said to Jack when I came in, I was like, my head was exploding like practically every other page. It was just... (laughs) Unbelievable. Congratulations on a great book. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Leaving you
3: speechless is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, sister? <laughs> this is radio. <laughs> no, I know. No, I really was. I, I had to kind of speed read the book because, as you know, I didn't get it until kind of late and I was super busy last week. But I literally stayed in bed all day yesterday and read almost the entire book. And it was just like, oh, my God, I had notes on almost every page. So what we're going to do actually now is I'm an ask you one question and then i'm going to go through the list of topics um and i want you to pick the five top ones that you want to talk about so that we can really drill down on the things that you found the most compelling about your research and what you were doing so first of all you say that we're winning let's hear the good news what's what's that about soda sales are down. And
1: and they've been going down for 10 years wow. and the soda industry believes that this is because of health advocacy. And who am
3: I to argue with them? Yeah, right? <laughs> we don't want to burst that bubble for them, do we? No, whatever they believe sounds good to me. But this has caused them to redouble their efforts in many other ways such as, for example, uh, expanding their efforts overseas in developing nations, um, increasing their budgets for marketing. So I'm going to run through... Um, Some of the topics that really blew my mind, um, and then we'll decide which ones we want to talk about because there's no way we're going to get them all into 45 minutes. So let's. I mean, one thing I did want you to address um, is in the very beginning of the book, you talk about sugar, you know, quote unquote addiction. And then let's let's talk for a second about the differences, if there are any, between how human bodies metabolize HFCS high fructose corn syrup versus regular sugar like beet or cane, which is now becoming a marketing uh, ploy in itself. Thank
1: <laughs> you. Well, actually, they metabolize in the same because they are the same. So they it doesn't matter. They both
3: contain matter. glucose and fructose.
1: Right. So that is and, just in roughly point. equal amounts. I mean, there's some, there's more for a little bit more fructose in high fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. How much is arguable, um, but basically they're metabolized the same. They both have
3: glucose and fructose. And your body reacts the same way to that stimulation, right? Whether you're eating table sugar by the by the you know teaspoonful or tablespoonful, or whether you're drinking gallons of caro syrup, it's the same thing.
1: Uh, well, actually, carol syrup is, syrup is just glucose. Oh, really? So it's, so it's not the same thing. Not quite it's the, the high, same it's thing. It's the, what they call the high-fructose corn syrup, which isn't actually all that high necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the same as table sugar. But the body reacts to, to sugars in the same way. Glucose one way, fructose another. Um, and if you have a mixture of glucose and fructose, you're dealing... With the same kind of thing,
3: and it causes the same level of weight gain. Does it have? Is there a difference in the way well, the no, brain they have the same responds? No, number of calories. And is there any if difference in the way the brain responds to it in terms of like satiety or cravings? Do you think? there no, is No, it's difference?
1: glucose and fructose. They're the, same. the same.
3: Okay, good. I mean, bi- they're biochemically the same. Right. It's where they appear mm-hmm. that makes
1: a difference, and how much makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And a high fructose corn syrup is the sweetener in soft drinks in the United States. Since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're drinking a lot of soft drinks, you're getting a lot of high fructose corn syrup. Right.
3: I just wanted to get that clear because I, you know, part of the whole marketing strategy. In fact, I took a photograph for you today in the subway of, of new Coke Life, I think it's called, and it's sweetened with cane sugar and stevia. Right. Have you seen that? And it's got yes, the green label like they have in Brazil. So, um, I just wanted to, you know, really make that point clear that these are exactly the same sugar is sugar is sugar. Right? Yeah, and we eat too much of it. And we eat too much of it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, And then the one last thing, one little historical thing was I, I was really... I loved George McGovern. I thought he was great. My family supported him in his run for the presidency. And back in the 1970s, as you point out, he... Um, he, I think he was the one who was uh, really the first to sort of sound the alarm about soda and, and kind of get the ball rolling on the dietary guidelines that are issued every five years and that you and I have talked about on this show. And it kind of reminded me of how his efforts kind of reminded me uh, of how in the 1970s also the warnings about antibiotics started coming out, and those, too, were put down. There was a lot of I – mean, the thing that really blew my mind about the book in general was there are so many parallels between tobacco, between the meat industry, the – you know, the, the, I mean, there's so many industries that are doing, you know, big food marketing uh, strategies, they're all part of the same thing. And that is just so scary. And that's what I thought was so great about how you you know made this so clear and laid out their strategies so well.
1: Well, they they work the same way. I mean, they're publicly traded corporations, and their first priority is to meet the needs of stockholders. And stockholders simply want more money now. Um, And so the goals are very focused: sell more product, and it doesn't matter what the effects of those products are in public health. That's not the issue. The issue is selling more product and getting the profits to increase every quarter and reporting growth to Wall Street um, and being able to pay the executives of these companies uh, tens of millions of dollars a year in compensation.
3: Yeah, grotesquely bloated salaries. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. So now I'm going to read you a list of the the sort of issues that came up to me, and and then we um, we will go through which ones you particularly like. One of the less discussed but most important consequences of soda consumption is tooth decay. Nobody ever talks about tooth decay, but the impact of tooth decay on soda drinkers is huge. That's topic one. Then, well, we just, we just talked about tobacco and meat parallels, but also um, the fact that there are these externalities that, that soda doesn't pay for any more than meat pays for in terms of environmental degradation, or big ag doesn't pay for in terms of environmental degradation, or that tobacco pays for, like in terms of health issues. So there's all the environmental costs, the water use, the health costs. Those are all parallels with other big industries. Um, then the baby bottles adorned with soda logos, which obviously didn't last very long. But the marketing to kids, that's a huge topic. You go through a lot with that. Um, then there's the Federal Trade Commission. Why is it so scared to take on things like marketing to kids? And you describe a very interesting uh, kid video debacle that um, you know basically failed utterly in its in its desire to address marketing to kids school food another great topic that we've talked about quite often on the show um and how in 1930 in uh, sorry in 2013 the USDA you wrote eased off of meal standards and there are now members of congress who have recently introduced bills to weaken or eliminate nutritional standards for school meal programs i want to talk about who those people were if you want to I loved the chapter about teaching kids to advocate for themselves. Um, then we could talk about how big soda is infiltrating developing countries and the impact of that. Snap and soda, political bedfellows, in other words, uh, food stamps and soda, strange alliances. And then I, my note to myself was, why is it okay to regulate seatbelts or tobacco or women's access to birth control or alcohol, but not soda? I don't get that. Um, and then partnering with health organizations and dietitians and how Coke and Pepsi so often fund research, and I am strongly of the opinion that all science should be funded by independent sources, like taxpayer money, um, and then hard, hardball lobbyists, how much money are we talking about, and then all of the environmental impacts, and then finally, there's a, you have a list of advocacy measures that we could go through. so of those topics, what 's your favorite? Good heavens. <laughs> I love
1: them all. It's like children, isn't it? You love them all. Yes. Um, I mean, my current obsession is uh, food industry marketing, uh, food industry um, payment and involvement and partnerships and alliances with health professionals, research yes. and practice. Yes. So that's my current obsession. Let's talk so about that. I love that. So I, I certainly that. want to get that one in. But yeah. I can run through some of these very, very quickly. Okay if you like. I mean, let's start with the tooth decay one, because I was greatly influenced by Karen Sokol Gutierrez, who's a physician in California, who runs an NGO mm-hmm. that goes down to places in Latin America and works with parents around tooth decay issues, where baby-bottle tooth decay is just an enormous, enormous problem. And her story is so interesting, because she was a Peace Corps volunteer yeah. in Elsa Salvador, 25 or 30 years ago, um, and there's this gorge. She has. This, she gave me this gorgeous photograph, which is reproduced in the yes. book, of her with kids in El Salvador with these beautiful smiles on their faces. She went back 25 years later and discovered that the kids all had rotted out teeth because mm. they'd started drinking sodas. Mm. And, the, and there were sodas in the baby bottles, and there were sodas in school, and there were sodas everywhere. Oh. And so she's got a campaign going on there that's very, very successfully getting people to try to keep sodas away from kids. That's part of the we're winning advocacy piece yes. in this. Yes. Um, so that's the tooth decay story. It's greatly ignored, and it shouldn't be, because the strongest evidence for um, a a health impact of sodas on, uh, on you know human physiology is in tooth decay. Yes, where it, where it's incontrovertible evidence. It's been known about forever. Um, and it's now time to do something about it so that one we can uh, dispense with i want to talk about marketing to kids because i think it's really crucial, really important um and the whole and the environmental issues the water yeah. chapter was one of the big revelations to me yeah. was how much water it takes to create a bottle of soda i mean that's just an extraordinary story yes. in part because both coke and pepsi win prizes for reducing their environmental impact in the water area, um, and in fact, the New York Times had an article quite recently that read to me like it was written by somebody who had just reproduced the press release oh dear. about how Coca-Cola had gotten its water fo- footprint, that is, the amount of water that it takes to produce a liter of soda, down to practically one percent. Um, and, in fact, the soda companies have been able to do that. But none of that counts the water that's required to clean the plant, wash the bottles, sure. um, and grow the sugar, which is the really big one.
3: That's right. That's the big – I mean, that sort of goes into the corporate social responsibility part, which I – in the philanthrop marketing, um, which, you know, those were programs that really – uh, opened my eyes because as you point out in that in you know various spots in the book you know these social programs make are, are unbelievably successful at promoting the image that these these companies which are you know decimating our population through the various health impacts that I think most people are familiar with with heart disease with overweight obesity diabetes etc and yet uh, you know they are as you just pointed out winning prizes and it goes way beyond just environmental i mean they're they're investing i mean your whole chapter on minorities and in- investing in minority organizations like the NAACP or various other, you know, black and Hispanic groups. Let's, can we talk about that for a little bit? Because I thought Absolutely. that was that's, that's a really important one. Yes. Because when
1: Mayor Bloomberg had the bright idea to cap the sizes of sodas right. at 16 ounces, uh, the famous soda cap initiative um, that was soundly defeated by public opinion and by the soda industry's judicious use of minority organizations <laughs> to support them. Yeah. Um, the you know There's a long history with that, and I was unfamiliar with that history when I started Same. working on this book and was astonished, for example, to discover that Martin Luther King, on the night before he was assassinated, uh, gave a speech in which he exhorted his listeners uh, to boycott Coca-Cola because they weren't hiring African Americans uh, in the bottling plant or in the corporation, and they weren't advertising in black publications. Um, And so there was a demand from the African-American and Hispanic communities uh, over years and years to get the soda companies to market to them. Yeah. And that was before obesity and its consequences became such a problem in minority communities. And, of course, the, I, I had lots and lots of uh, friends who are of um, minority origin read that chapter to make sure that I got it right. And what they kept saying over and over and over again is that the minority community isn't monolithic. Um, it's pluralistic like every other community. Mm-hmm. and there were winners and losers in all of that um and the winners got advertising and got jobs and got um remuneration from soda companies and the losers became obese That's and got that. type 2 diabetes
3: <laughs> Right, exactly. But there was one really interesting point that you made, which was that even as recently, I think it was like 2010 or 2012, there was a giant class action suit in which these tremendous disparities in hiring practices, in promotion practices, and, and wage, essentially wage theft. Um, was just successfully prosecuted, and Coke had to pay out, what, uh, was like $195 million or something like that? Mm, and
1: fines over there. And that. fines, yeah. And fines, yeah. So, I mean, there are very deep-seated uh, problems. Coca-Cola is a southern company. Yes. Pepsi-, Pepsi is a northern company, and those are the two big ones. The book is mostly about them because they so dominate the industry. Right. It's a very highly concentrated industry. Um, and the uh, it's a southern it's a southern corporation, so it it's based in Atlanta, yeah. Uh, with all of the southern stuff that goes that goes with that, and it's the companies have done what they can. To overcome the past history, but the companies are about selling product. That's what they're about. Yeah. And when public health became an issue, and it became clearer and clearer that people who habitually drink sodas, and we should talk about that, too, yes, yes. because that was a real revelation. And how much? Yeah. Um, well, how much is people drink, and people who habitually drink sodas are way more and have higher rates of type 2 diabetes and heart disease and a whole bunch of other conditions. The quantity issue is interesting because only half the American population drinks sugar sweetened beverages. Hmm. Um, the I would other have half it would be does more. not. So, what that means is that if you have an average consumption in the United States of roughly 10 to 12 ounces a day per capita, mm-hmm. Um, That's, you know, one 12-ounce can, roughly, per capita. That's men, women, old, young, Mm -hmm. little, tiny babies. It's per capita. Right. Now you have to double that. Because half the population doesn't drink sodas. So now you're talking about 20 or 24 ounces a day. And now you're talking real sugar and real calories and um, real obesity and real type 2 diabetes and all of those things. And a quarter of the population drinks sodas all day long.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean there are people who drink a soda at least with every meal and sometimes more. Right. I've seen exactly. it happen myself. I mean I yeah. my ex husband was somebody who drank a lot of soda when I first met him. I mean somehow we managed to get over that. But anyway <laughs> yes. I managed to I managed to prevail amazingly.
1: Yeah. You know, and I mean this it's changing now. So now people are looking at sugar sweetened beverages and saying, Good heavens, what are you doing?
0: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: as the amount of sugar, which is very, very well hidden in the flavor of soda. I mean the the acid balance and the um, flavors that are in there hide the extraordinary sweetness and mm-hmm. uh, you know one of the things I say in the teach kids how to advocate chapter is you know the first thing you do is you dissolve sugar in in water and show how much sugar is in right. um, is in is in these things and it's you know it's very hard for me to remember but it's basically a teaspoon per ounce.
3: Yes, that's so, right. No, that's good. You know, it's a cube of sugar per ounce It's a little
1: bit less, of less than five-sixths of a teaspoon mm-hmm. for, per ounce. So if you've got 12 ounces, you've got 10 teaspoons of sugar. Yeah. And so you take 10 packets of sugar and you dissolve them in a 12-ounce glass of water. Nobody would want to drink
3: that. That's a glucose tolerance test. I was just going to say, like, it reminds me of, yes, a glucose tolerance test. And also, um, you know, didn't they have like a, a stomach thing? I remember being given this, like it was like Coke syrup or something. They'll give you that if your stomach is upset or if you need to vomit or like and, and whatever it was. And I also rec- remember having a reaction to eating sugar as a child. You know, sometimes you just want to eat a teaspoon of sugar when you're a kid mm-hmm. and I would have this like horrible physiological reaction where my saliva glands would begin to, you know, just gush out saliva, obviously to try to neutralize <laughs> contents. Yeah, no, we and love sugar. We love it, but, you know, we love it, sugar. it's not that great when it's just like, I don't understand why that doesn't happen to us, that, that you know, spit gushing experience when you drink oh. 10 ounces of, of sugar in a glass. I mean, I, I don't know. But anyway, um, I want to I wanna just like rock it along here because there really was just such an amazing amount of stuff here 's one thing that really struck me was the the bit about the Federal Trade Commission and the kit you know talking about marketing to children again. Um, you described a an episode in which the Federal Trade Commission was finally induced to act upon the issue of marketing to children under twelve, and um, there was a whole sort of debacle in which they they advanced some principles toward you know the, i guess the USDA and congress to try to regulate this marketing and, um and it, and it, it turned into just a terrible debacle and they and they were they were evidently sort of shamed into silence and it's taken years for them to readdress this issue can you talk a little bit about well, actually, the intimidation tactics debacle. there were two right <laughs> well, one one in, one in the, the past. Late 19,
1: uh, one in the late 1970s 19, right and one in during the Obama administration right. and and I can say right from the beginning because I went to a meeting on food marketing at the White House um a year or so ago, and uh, there were a lot of food industry executives around there, Mm -hmm. and one of the issues on the table was marketing to children, and they were very clear that marketing to children was the line in the sand Mm -hmm. beyond which they could not go. There were a lot of things that they could do, and the soda companies have said that they will not market on children's television to children under the age of 12, and they don't. Right. they, get, they reach them in other ways, but they don't do that. I mean, they have they've been true to their word on the – they do not have advertising on kids' cartoon shows, for example. Anymore. Anymore, right. but they do market to them in other ways. But that's a different question. Um, but they they were very clear. They cannot stop marketing to children because it represents so much a part of their profits. They can't take the vending machines out of schools. They can't stop having kids want these things at sports events. Mm-hmm. They cannot stop the kind of marketing that they're doing, or they'll lose sales too much. Okay, so that's pretty. clear. (laughs) What happened was that there was a in the mid to late 1970s, uh, the Workshop for Children's Television began to realize that the amount of marketing to kids was extraordinary and that it was having an effect in inducing kids to want the product, demand the product, wine for the product, mm-hmm. and eat the product. And so they wanted to stop food marketing to kids. The Federal Trade Commission proposed um a regulation that would regulate marketing to kids on television, and the industry went berserk, Mm -hmm. and Congress went berserk and essentially passed a law that said the Federal Trade Commission couldn't do anything to regulate marketing to kids on television. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. and so that was the end of, of Federal Trade Commission action on this until the Obama administration came in and Michelle Obama started Let's Move. And one of the goals of Let's Move was to reintroduce the topic of marketing to children. The world's changed since yes. 1979 and 1980. Kids are much fatter now. Yes. It's become a much more acute problem. Um, and so. Uh, Congress, right away, authorized the Federal Trade Commission to start what was called an interagency working group of four federal agencies to write a policy setting nutrition standards for what could be marketed to children. Right, And the industry was so—these were voluntary, voluntary Voluntary standards. guidelines, right, right. And the industry was so upset about it that Congress passed another— Regulation that said they would need to do a cost benefit analysis before um, they proposed any such regulations because the industry was so upset about the voluntary standards that the that the interagency working group produced. So
3: it's over. It was killed. Unbelievable. We're going to take a short break, Mary, and stay on the line. Um, And listeners, stay tuned. We're going to just have a quick sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with Dr. Mary Nessel talking about her new book, Soda Politics, um, which is really mandatory reading for every man, woman, and child in the United States.
2: This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to cane 5com Here's what Heritage Radio Network would sound like without donations. It's not as good as the show you were just listening to, is it? Give us a few bucks. Help keep us running. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Click the Donate tab on the top right corner. (laughs)
3: I like that. I haven't heard that one before. Uh, This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Dr. Marion Nessel. And we're talking about her brand new book, which is just out, I think, this week, maybe even. Isn't that right, Marion? Well, its
1: official publication day is October 5th, but it's out.
3: It's out. It's in stores. It's called Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. And um, it's, you know, it's a tough book to read because it's very dense with information, but it is literally a page turner. I mean, I just, I, I, I devoured it. I really did. And I don't always find that so easy to do. Um, so I want to go back to talk a little bit more about what we were just discussing, which was marketing and trying to um, bring caps on marketing on some level towards uh, children and, and the many ways in which uh, soda companies circumvent uh, the sort of weak need rules that we have now, which is, oh, we're not going to market until... until Children's television uh, under the age of twelve, but there are so many other ways. Um, let's run through some of the other ways that that children are uh, getting the soda message. It's 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 really ubiquitous, and it starts with you know the toys at the Happy Meal and the. What else, Marian? Tell us more.
1: Well, this is really how I got started mm-hmm. in this whole thing. I went to a meeting in the 1990s of, um, at the, actually the National Cancer Institute of all things about behavioral causes of cancer. It was mostly about smoking. Mm-hmm. And I saw people give slideshows of marketing cigarettes uh, to kids. And I thought, holy smoke, we should be doing this for the soda companies. And I started paying attention to advertising. And one of the things about soda marketing is you don't even notice it because it's so much a part of the landscape of American culture and particularly of child culture that you don't even pay attention to it. There are soda logos on absolutely everything. Um, And for kids, they're all over schools in sports equipment, in machines in um, if they 're sports teams there 're going to be logos everywhere in the s- stores that are around the schools there 're going to be signs everywhere and the commercials are fabulous they are brilliantly designed they 're shown on all kinds of adult television but kids watch adult of course. television sports and, sports and the companies shows. Uh, have sports figures and music figures who represent them beyonce's right. incredible 50 million dollar contract with PepsiCo is one example um, and the various sponsorship of sports figures many of them um, minority from minority groups I and know. the kids the kids see this and they get the connection pretty quickly plus the sponsorships of community organizations right. um, and in in every way I mean there's just it 's just everywhere, and if they 're you know part of the companies' um, particularly coca cola 's um, modus operandi you know it 's to fund exercise venues and yes. we lo- we learned a lot about that from a revelatory article in the New York Times in August about how coca cola and the American Beverage Association fund um, academics to Develop organizations that promote physical activity as the way to prevent obesity and say nothing about drinking less soda. Uh, so we see all of this, and the kids see this, and yeah. they recognize the brand. They already know at a very young age whether they like Coke or Pepsi better. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one of the hilarious things that yes. I discovered was that um, although there's lots and lots of and there's lots of research on this, that everybody has a really strong feeling about which one they prefer. But if you do blind taste tests, tests nobody could tell the difference. No. <laughs> yeah.
3: No, I love that, but you know, in a way, that's sort of part of the. You know, obviously, in a way, not in a way, completely, it is part of the whole sort of marketing and, and the Coke Pepsi wars were as much, you know, fun and interesting um, as any other marketing tool you could imagine. Even though it implied, you know, this tremendous uh, cutthroat rivalry between the two yeah, companies. And in fact,
1: they're essential to each other.
3: Yeah, exactly. They. Can, I mean, you know, that was. I mean, that was such a huge marketing campaign in the '90s. I remember so well. I mean, 80s and 90s, the Coke and Pepsi wars. I mean, it was enormous. I want to talk for a second more about the corporate social responsibility. You just touched on it with how these um, companies fund social activities and sports programs in communities. Um, You know, I just, the the cynicism of that just broke my heart. It really did. And I I, I thought especially about the sports things. And, And one of the points you make so well is that instead of talking about, not drinking soda, they, they, they make it all the onus is all on the consumer. You, you need to move more, you need to burn off more calories, and, and here's how you do it. You do this and you do that, and you follow LeBron James or whoever the sports figure of your choice is. But the reality is, is that you, can't, you almost can't exercise enough, can you? To, I mean, if you do, If you drink three sodas <laughs> a day, that's a really hard load to unload.
1: Well, that was the basis of New York City's poster campaign. Yeah. You know, that if you want to burn off the calories in a 20 ounce soda, you have to walk from Union Square to Brooklyn. <laughs> Which is
3: doable. It's only of three miles. That's not far. Yeah. No. I mean, I actually try to walk five miles a day when I don't go to the gym. So it isn't that much. a it's really not that far.
1: Yeah, but most people have a hard time fitting that into their busy days.
3: Well, of course. Yeah. It's you're talking an hour, hour and a half if you, you know, if you try to do it all at <laughs> once.
1: Um, so it's, um, you know, it's very, very difficult to work off calories through physical activity. Mind you, physical activity is really important. Of course. You know, it's very important for health, and everybody would be healthy. You're being more active, almost everybody. Some people are plenty active as it is. Um, But you can't burn off calories that way. It's not a good way to diet. If you want to diet, there's really only one tried and true way, and that's eat less.
3: Yeah, push away from the table, as my friend Rosemary says.
1: Yeah, push away from the table, and drinking
3: less soda is a great way to start. It's almost a painless way. I mean, if you are a soda drinker, it's a really easy way to reduce (laughs) your calorie load every day by, I don't know, maybe as much as 600 calories, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Incredible. Um, I want to go back to the school food thing uh, just for a second, because you wrote, as I mentioned before, you wrote in 2013, the USDA eased off of meal standards and that members of Congress introduced bills to weaken or eliminate nutritional standards in school meal programs. (laughs) Talk about that for a little bit. and, And who were those congressmen?
1: Well, they were congressmen who think that the government should stay out of personal choice and who get lots and lots of money from food corporations mm-hmm. for their election campaigns. I mean, that's how the system works. Yes. It's not very complicated to figure it out, and it's not just Republicans. There are plenty of Democrats who uh, fall into the same category. I mean, the idea that school food should be as controversial as it is just absolutely boggles the mind. It does. Who could possibly be opposed to having kids? to eat more healthfully. Well, it turns out there are lots of groups. <laughs> um, lots. Uh, you know, as I say, it boggles the mind. Um, and these groups include any food company or beverage company yeah. that was selling a product in schools. Uh, you know, uh, this is a, um, a market that is steady. Captive audience, everything you want in marketing. So and they legacy. Wanna, they want to be in schools.
3: Yeah, then their legacy because you're training up the kids to continue right. to buy those products as adults when they have right. discretion over their own spending. The
1: and you want the yeah. brand. You don't want generic food. You want the brand in front of the kids. That's right. Um, and you're marketing the brand, and if you give kids branded foods and the exact same food, Branded and unbranded, they greatly prefer the one with the brand on it. Incredible. That's also been shown with extraordinary amounts of research. Um, so we know that that's the case. The companies know that it's the case. And they will do anything to keep sodas in schools. Um, there was an advocacy effort to get vending machines out of schools. Yes, um, and that advocacy effort was um, subverted, I don't know any other word for it, yeah. by the Clinton Foundation, um, which went in and brokered a deal to keep the vending machines in schools but take the full sugar sodas out. Right. Well, that leaves the brand right. in the schools, and the companies agreed to that because
3: that's they what they the wanted. they got the
1: brand, right. They got the brand.
3: Absolutely. Um, Incredible.
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, so the schools have become this. I mean, we're not done with the school food thing yet. Congress has yet to deal with the reauthorization of the uh, Child Nutrition Act, which does the school food funding. Mm-hmm. And, the, uh, you know, and then there's this bizarre business with the School Nutrition Association, yes. which is the organization of people who work in school lunch programs, which is uh, on record as opposing the nutrition standards.
3: And what was the reason Um, for that?
1: Well, I think there are two reasons. One is that for some schools, they're quite difficult to do, not all. Um, In fact, most schools are doing fine with them. But also, that organization is heavily supported by food companies. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I think it gets 40% of its income
3: from
1: from food companies. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, it's, that's how it is. And that's, that's why, you know, my obsession about food company sponsorship of nutrition research. Yes. It's the same kind of thing. Yes. That the results of food company, and particularly soda company, uh, the results of soda company sponsorship of research is exactly the kind of results that the soda companies want. Yeah. The research shows, the sponsored research shows, in contrast to the results of independently funded research that sodas don't do any harm, don't make people fat, have nothing to do with type 2 diabetes, and that all of the national programs for collecting dietary information um, and relating it to health are so flawed that if they come up with evidence that shows that sodas are correlated with poor health outcome, you shouldn't pay any attention to them.
3: (laughs) I'm not kidding. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, that brings up a bigger question for me, and it's actually one that I've come back to again and again. Whenever I talk to a scientist like yourself, um, you know, and and you look into who is funding research, whether it's uh, research within a university, whether it's research on pharmaceuticals or whatever, um, you know, and it, and research is basically bought and paid for now by mu- large multinational corporations, be they pharmaceuticals, be they agricultural, be they uh, food companies or soda companies. and. You know, I I see that as a tremendous stumbling block towards you know future research that we desperately need that addresses things like human health and climate change, and you know how like I mean Steve Brill's absolutely fantastic series in the Huffington Post. I don't know if you've been reading that about Risperdal. Have you been reading that? Mary? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so good, and it talks about how Johnson and Johnson, you know, one of the most trusted names in medical research. Absolutely circumvented and and presented flawed results and suppressed information about the use of this drug Risperdal, which they were marketing to children when it was clearly known within the company that it was not safe. And so... You know they had all of these studies that they funded themselves that supported the argument that you could use it in a in a juvenile population, and now it's becoming clear that that was not a good thing, and it caused a lot of you know suicidal ideation and death in children. Ah, yes, I I have read it, and very very powerful uh, reporting. I mean, and and it's just it's just part and parcel of how science, in my opinion, in this country at least, and maybe around the world. Is being essentially um, corrupted. Corrupted. Yes, thank Mm -hmm. you. That's the word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really alarming. And the, um, you know, (laughs) I. Uh, on my blog, foodpolitics.com dot com. Since March, I've been collecting. Every time I get five food industry sponsored research studies, I post them. Yes, in in blocks of five, and and they all come out with, or almost all of them come out with results that favor the sponsors' interest Some of them quite hilariously. Yeah. I particularly love the chocolate ones. <laughs> um, and the uh, and then I I have a plea out please send me examples of studies sponsored by food companies that do not favor the sponsor's interest. And since mid-March, the score is 65 to 3. Wow. Um, So I've posted 65, or will by the end of next week post 65 studies um, that come out with results in favor of the sponsor's interest. And these studies are not designed to produce information about basic research the most part, they're designed to produce results that can be used in marketing. Right. That's why I love the, the chocolate ones because you immediately see the Mars company, the maker of M and M's, come out with press releases saying cocoa flavanols reduce the risk of heart disease or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and even though they never mention the word chocolate, everybody knows that cocoa flavanols come from chocolate, right?
3: Sure, <laughs> sure, of course. No, right. it's it's astonishing. But I'm just wondering how, uh, how you know. Why why there isn't more of you know, ap- academics like yourself, um, who are obviously so, so clearly aware of what's going on, why there isn't more of a groundswell of protest or uh, of advocacy toward having public funding for science research. Um,
1: because the government doesn't want to do more, because Congress doesn't want to give more money for research. It's an enormous problem. Yeah. And research is harder and harder to come by. The USDA has just come out with a big report on where research, um, Federal research funding goes, and mm-hmm. all of the basic things in basic nutrition research, food composition, nutrient composition, the role of nutrients, um, other things having to do with this really fundamental work, no, nobody's funding it anymore.
3: Right.
0: They're only uh, so funding the Department Marketing of Agriculture studies.
1: funding is down. Yeah. NIH is much more interested, and you can understand why in obesity, type two diabetes, and chronic diseases, and you can understand why. They're putting the focus on that. Sure. Um, but money for basic nutrition research is really hard to come by. And so uh, people are, need. Uh, people in, in academic institutions have to bring in research money. That research money helps pay their salaries. I mean, I can't even begin to describe what a privileged position I'm in. I get a full salary from NYU. Yeah. I don't need research grants to do the kind of research that I do, um, and I don't need, you know, I don't, I don't need. To to do this So I can sit in my ivory tower And say What's happening is really terrible And I'm really worried About the discrediting of nutrition research That is resulting from food industry sponsorship And people who take that sponsorship First of all insist That it has nothing to do With the design or conduct of their Or interpretation of their research I think they're wrong about that Mm -hmm. But that's what they insist and that gets into a whole psychological literature um, on conflict of interest and how it works Indeed. That makes it very clear that even pens and pads given to physicians by drug companies Changes prescription practices, but the doctors don't realize it
3: Wow, Marian, that's another whole book for you right there it's... That's the next book <laughs> (laughs) What a girl. Um, Yeah, it is, actually. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad because it is. I mean, as I've been doing this program over the last, you know, six years, and I've read so many books, and I so often see... Um, you know, this is such a topic that comes up often in these books, and I remember doing publicity for a book long, long ago by a young woman named Jennifer Washburn called University Inc., which was the or incorporated, which was the first time I realized how pernicious uh, the funding of studies is by outside sources, such as drug, pharmaceutical, you know, pharmaceutical companies, food companies, etc. Um... We have about three minutes left. So I guess we will uh, leave it there. And we'll talk about where you will be um, promoting your book and what's happening and how people can learn more about it and more about you and your research and what's going on.
1: Well, the easiest place is to go onto my website, <coughs> politics.com, where my life is an open book. Yes. I don't know how else to put it. There's a page on this book. There's a page on my other books. Right. Um, and that's and I also list my appearances. Yes. And if you click on appearances, you can go through everything that's scheduled so far this fall. Um, on October 6th at 5 o'clock at the NYU Library, uh, that's the official launch of the the book uh-huh. and that's where uh, the first book signing will be and the and uh, I'll be talking about the book at that and then
3: I hope there will be others I'm sure there will be many many more as word gets out about this really uh, exceptional tome I mean <laughs> it's quite and- a it's a whopper there girlfriend. <laughs> It's got lots of pictures. It has lots and, of pictures and lots of tables. I loved the tables. Whoever? Yeah, they were very generous with
1: allowing illustrative material. Yes. And I have to say, I've just looked at the e-version. Um, you know, I'm an electronic dinosaur, and I don't know very much about these things. Right. But I just looked at the electronic version of the book, and all the pictures are in color. Oh, how and nice. It's got li- and it's got links to all kinds of stuff. It's really fun.
3: Oh, wow. That's great. You know, Jonathan actually sent me the electronic version. I'll take a look at it. And there's also several, two wonderful appendixes and then copious notes on where your source material came from and stuff. So people who want to pursue this further have ample opportunity to, um, you know, follow up on, on root sources and, and root information that is all comprised in your arguments. Marion, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really, really grateful to you for talking to me. I wish we could do another hour on this and maybe we will. Um, (laughs) Because I mean, like... Like I said, we barely scratched the surface of all the topics that I really wanted to drill down on. Um, and I want to thank my uh, my sponsor, which is Kane Winery. Um, the theme song to my show is Dead Stars. And our break music was provided by Knife Show. Uh, thanks again to my engineer, Jack, and Liz. And um, we'll see you next week. We'll be talking to Park Wilty from Tufts University, actually. I know he's a pal of yours, Marion. And um, thank you again, my darling, for showing up today. And uh, next up, folks, you'll be listening to a short clip from The Farm Report from our own beloved Aaron Fairbanks. See you next week. Thanks for listening.
2: The beauty of edible insects is that we mitigate a lot of the the potential harms that we've seen so far. So, for instance, if your concern is a zoonosis or an animal-to-human disease, Things like mad cow disease, avian flu has been particularly pertinent recently here in the U.S. Aspire USA's Robert Nathan Allen joins episode 247 of The Farm Report to discuss the low risks involved with eating insects, especially given that it is a new and controlled industry, as well as the environmental benefits of doing so. Insects are so far genetically removed from humans, that there there is no risk of that sort of transmission from animal to human. So right there we have a very big benefit the insects don't have to be raised using hormones or antibiotics which is another very pertinent concern in the livestock industry the amount of antibiotics that we have to use and the effects that has on the population we don't have that problem and then when we're talking about regulation again this is a brand new industry and the industry is ahead of the regulations right now because you know organizations like the fda and the usda they move at a pace that that is very cautious and the industry as a whole has been very good about being in constant touch with our municipal and our state health departments, our federal regulatory agencies like FDA and USDA, to make sure that we're abiding by any and all potentially applicable rules. We follow all of the standard good manufacturing practices. We have a, a, a HASPA plan in place, which is quickly becoming the, the industry standard. And and like I said, we're open to working with those regulatory agencies, not just to make sure that we're doing it right, but also to make sure that the rules that are put into place are applicable and effective and don't allow the bar to start too low. One of the the early guidance we got from the FDA is that food products made for humans cannot use insects that are wild harvested or grown for feed, for lizard food or for bait. And so I think that's that's a perfect example of the FDA, while not having any official rules, giving very clear guidance to the industry to say that if you're going to use this as a human food, it has to be treated like a human food. And so we've worked with those agencies so that when those rulings do become official, it will be difficult for somebody to introduce a low-quality product into the industry. And I think it's, at the end of the day, that's a good safeguard for consumers. This was an excerpt from episode 247 of The Farm Report. Got your stomach rumbling? Head on over to The Farm Report show page on heritageradionetwork.org for all archived episodes, extra bonus content, and more. The Farm Report is also available on iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.